A week from tomorrow is the 4th of July, as everyone knows, the celebration of our independence from Great Britain. Amid all the picnics, the parades, and the fireworks, it probably would be good to remember that it took a, a war to win that independence, but for one crucial battle of that war, July the 4th might be just another day on the calendar. That is because early in 1777, things were not going very well for George Washington. The Continental Army was demoralized and in retreat after a failed attempt to capture Quebec City. Hoping to take advantage of this demoralization, the British devised a plan to win uh, a war, a battle, uh, and put the rebellion down before the end of the year. Their plan was to cut New England off from the rest of the colonies in hopes of forcing the Continental Army into a decisive battle they, the British felt confident in winning. That battle took place between the months of September and October, actually two battles, in, 77, in 1777 near the town of Saratoga, New York. The British were right about the importance of the battle, but wrong about who they thought would be the winner. They suffered a humiliating defeat. The Revolutionary War went on for another four years before the British surrender at Yorktown, but had the Continental Army lost at Saratoga, we would today, uh, tea would be the national beverage of choice and we would be singing God Save the Queen as our national anthem. Historians refer to the Battle of Saratoga as a turning point in the Revolutionary War. In fact, the word turning point makes its first appearance, or one of its first appearances, in the English language in 1777, same year as the battle. A turning point is defined as a critical moment or crisis when an important change takes place which affects the future of a person or a thing. This Sunday, we have reached a turning point in Luke's Gospel. This begins the longest section of his carefully ordered narrative. Up to this point, the Lord has confined his activity to his own backyard, Galilee, and to mixed reviews, judging by the reaction of the people at Nazareth. No prophet is ever accepted in his own town or among his own, and uh, we should probably add anywhere else for that matter. Jesus' rejection in his hometown foretells what lies in his future. St. Luke doesn't hide the fact that the Galilean ministry uh, of Jesus was something of a failure. There is no indication that the cities of Galilee responded with any great enthusiasm to Jesus' call for repentance, and that is probably because, then as now, individuals, families, and whole communities are especially good at absorbing all the energy expended to change them with no significant result. And you cannot change other people. They have to change themselves. So now, the turning point of the gospel, Jesus makes the decision to go to Jerusalem, a city whose resistance to change 
led them to kill the prophets. This signals what the, that the road Jesus sets out on will only really end at Calvary. The Anglican theologian, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, a fine theologian, wrote that Luke had an incorrigibly tidy mind. This passage, part of what is called the travel narrative, is a good example of that tidy mind at work focusing on the theme of rejection. I've already mentioned the uproar in Nazareth and Jesus' ultimate rejection in Jerusalem on Good Friday at the end of the journey. In today's passage, Luke gives us four more brief examples of that kind of reaction that Jesus faces. The hostility of a Samaritan village that won't give hospitality, and three individuals who, while they may be intrigued by Christ, cannot accept the requirements of discipleship. The opposite of that, of course, is in the Book of Kings that we just heard when Elisha follows Elijah, literally burns his bridges behind him. But if Luke's mind is so tidy, why does he spend so much of his time and ours writing 12 chapter, a 12-chapter travelogue to get us to Holy Week? Why not cut right to the chase and go directly to the Passion account in chapter 22? The answer is that what also interests Luke is the shape of salvation in the lives of people who, like you and I, meet Jesus Christ. Do they, do we, accept the good news or reject it? And what is the consequences, or what are the consequences, of that acceptance or rejection in the life of an individual? This is the personal turning point, the moment of crisis that calls for radical change that anyone who comes in contact with Christ ultimately faces. Luke wants us to understand that the shape of salvation accomplished by Christ does not begin in an alternative universe far, far away, but here and now. It concerns the whole of a life of a believer. Those who accept Christ's offer of salvation agree to live in a distinctive way of life as a citizen of an alternative kingdom already present. The consequences of citizenship in that kind of kingdom means that the baptized are perpetually out of step with the culture around us. We are best described as resident aliens, strangers in a strange land with a culture that becomes stranger and stranger the more it becomes unhinged from the Judeo-Christian worldview and lapses into wokeism. The Battle of Saratoga was the turning point of our nation's struggle for independence. Today's gospel is the turning point in another kind of battle that Christ is preparing to wage against sin and death, a battle he will only appear to lose on Good Friday, but whose outcome after Easter Sunday can never be left in doubt. St. Luke is insisting that the shape of salvation looks like the body of a man hanging on a cross. We who claim him as our Lord cannot be for Christ and against him at one and the same time because we either hang with the crucified 
or we stand with the crucifiers. There's no middle ground.